0: with communities that already have such distrust in the healthcare system and you know and such fear those are the things that you know make them feel better and feel you know safer to come in to get care
1: I'm Dr. Lisa Fitzpatrick, founder of Grapevine Health and your host of the Grapevine Health Podcast, a podcast highlighting stories, health insights, and experiences of community members. We started this podcast because too often discussions and decision-making about health and the healthcare system don't include perspectives from the people we serve. So listeners, if you have a personal story or an experience from working in the community or on the front lines of healthcare, contact us and we might have you on the show. Today, I'm talking to Erin Athey, a provider who's providing health care on the ground in community. Good morning, Erin. Thank you for joining us today.
0: Good morning. How are you?
1: I'm doing well. First, I I want to thank you so much for the work you're doing in in the community during the pandemic, particularly. It's rare for us to see people out in the community on the ground serving people at a time like this. So thank you very much. You're welcome. Yeah. It's great. I want to talk a bit about um, the work you're doing and then uh, get some insights from you about what you've been learning. So first, why don't you introduce yourself and tell folks what, you, what you're doing in the community? Sure, absolutely. So I'm Erin Athey. I'm a nurse practitioner.
0: I'm also um, faculty at the School of Nursing at GW. So I am um, working actually on UMC's mobile unit. So United Medical Center is a hospital in Southeast DC, and they have these two amazing mobile units that are basically clinics on wheels. They're, you know, even nicer than some clinics that I've been in. Um, So we are, through UMC, partnering with um, the D.C. Housing Authority and also another community center called the Fonteroy Center in Ward 7 in Deanwood to go and go out and do COVID-19 testing to residents that are living in the communities there. And we also have uh, free flu vaccines uh, donated through GWMFA, and we're also doing some HIV testing on the mobile unit right now. The other thing is we're really just sort of connecting with people, checking in with them. Um, if they need any referrals or any resources in the community, we're trying to help them with that as well. So, um, and I'm fortunate I'm teaching also a community health course um, in nursing, in the nursing school. So I have students with me that are learning firsthand about community, um, community health and public health. So that's, that's been really kind of cool for them too, to experience
1: it. Yeah. So you and I have worked together uh, at different times. So I know that you're someone who has a a broad understanding about social determinants of health and some of the environmental challenges associated with poor health outcomes. So I know you get it, mm-hmm. which is why your perspective is interesting, Um can you tell us anything that surprised you? Because I suspect if it surprises you, it's something worth noticing or or taking note of. So I think you know I don't know if there's
0: been any major surprises. I think one thing that we're we're learning and we're finding out as we go from you know different different parts of the city and different housing complexes is just you know people's reservation about. You know coming out and accessing healthcare. I mean I think we know this. We know the social determinants of health and we know obviously certain areas of the of the district, especially you know the East End, Ward Seven and Eight, have you know problems with housing and, and food and, and all these social determinants. I think what may be most shocking to me is really just the I don't know, it's the reticence maybe or the the fear that I that I'm seeing of, of accessing healthcare or Maybe it's, it's hard to describe because I, when we're on the mobile unit, you know, people come up to the, the mobile and they look at it and it's sort of interesting. And, you know, what is this? Um, but then, you know, once we start talking to folks about their health and their healthcare needs, there really is this, this fear of, of going in to get seen at a hospital center or a clinic or something like that. Is so there, is I, it COVID though? I, I don't know. I think some of it's COVID related. Definitely. I mean, I think that has to do with COVID. But I mean, I think, you know, you and I both know, you know, when we've worked in clinics, especially clinics at United Medical Center, we we have high no show rates. So we know people don't come and it's for, you know, probably myriad reasons of transportation issues and just, you know, appointments not being convenient for them during a, a Monday through Friday, nine to five schedule. Um, you know, there's a lot of things, but I'm seeing just this sort of, I don't know, it's, it's a welcome response to us being there. But, you know, it's it's interesting when people talk and they really do have a lot of health issues going on, but they they haven't really taken an initiative to go out and get help. And it may be maybe in, pa- in part by COVID, but I think it's also just inconvenient. You know, I think it's hard sometimes to make that effort to get out. And so when it's convenient and it's right there, it makes a difference. And then you end up kind of helping people with more things than probably they thought they even could get help with so that's been cool and and like an interesting kind of good surprise
1: yeah and most of the people you're seeing do they have primary care providers
0: most of them do now they have primary care providers do they regularly go that's Mm -hmm. a different that's a different question right talk about
1: that
0: yeah um well interestingly and i mean maybe not for others but you know a lot of them have primary care providers and when we ask them you know are you going regularly A lot of them go because they have problems, right? So those that have chronic conditions with the diabetes or, you know, heart disease or whatever it is, tend to understand that you need to have that regular, you know, every three or four month appointments and they go regularly and they have primary care. Others say, yeah, I think I have, you know, primary care, but I haven't been, or I don't really understand the need to go if I don't have an acute problem right now. So the whole idea of like preventative care and, and wellness, you know, health maintenance, those types of things seem elusive. So um, so that's been that's been interesting. And I think that's kind of another good thing about what we're doing is we're, we're really just doing wellness kind of preventative things on the on the mobile unit. So we're like, look, you know, this is part of healthcare, care and this is, these are the, some of the things we can do. And if you regularly went to primary care, you could be doing these, you know, health maintenance exams as well. So, yeah. So I think it's, you know, I think it's a mix of things, but it's, I think it's, it's the meeting people where they live definitely seems to help. And I think we're, we're providing a lot of health information and education that they wouldn't otherwise get. And we're also, you know, able to do a couple of clinical things too, that, that hopefully are making them feel better, especially during COVID.
1: Yeah, well speaking of health information as you know my passion is health literacy. Uh-huh. Are you are you seeing any examples of how health literacy is affecting people's health or their health outcomes? And do you have an example?
0: Well, I can definitely say right off the bat that there's so many people that don't want the flu shot. <laughs> and that um, maybe so, shouldn't have been a surprise to me but but really is, but I will say You know and it's for all the normal things that you hear you know the flu shot look you know i've never had the flu um you know i never get the flu shot the flu shot can cause the flu um you know people had bad reactions the only time i got the flu shot i did get the flu that year like those types of things so um so but when you take a few minutes to explain kind of you know how the flu shot works you can't get the flu from the flu shot and you kind of talk about how you know the respiratory symptoms are similar between COVID and and flu, and so it's a really good idea this year. Most people understand that, and you can connect with them that way, and they say, "Oh, okay." Um, so I would say of those conversations of which I've had many, probably at least seventy five percent of the people say, "Okay, we'll we'll get the flu shot." That makes sense to us. I, I understand now what you're saying. So that's been that's been really cool. And then, in terms of anything else, and for health literacy, um, there's a lot of misinformation about COVID-19. A lot of people are confused, very scared about, you know, going out even with masks and, you know, distancing. I think people are very unsure about what their risk is right now, because of course there's so much information and misinformation out there. So, um, but you know, I think we have, we have caught, oh, caught, we've tested a couple people that have had completely no symptoms and, have ended up having COVID. So that's Mm -hmm. been, that's been good and educational. Yeah. And it's interesting because among those, and there haven't been so, so many, there's actually far fewer than I would have thought there. um, It ends up being, you know, in families, like you see almost like the whole family tree (laughs) getting COVID. Like it's, this person was positive and maybe no symptoms, but then when you, you know, call and talk to them and, and say, you know, how are you feeling? And Anybody else you've been around? Well, actually, you know, my sister or my mom or you know these family members actually were positive. So, um, so again, speaking to how contagious it is and how you know people need to be really careful. So that's been the other thing. Um, and then in terms of anything else, I think just regular health maintenance of chronic conditions. I think some folks are out of meds, you know, needing refills on medications and those types of things. And I don't think they know that they can either try to, you know, contact their primary care providers, and if they're not seeing patients um, in the office, that they might have some telehealth options available. So I think that's been another point of confusion for, for people out there. Those yeah. have been the main things. Yeah.
1: So I, I recently wrote a, an article about how we don't prioritize health literacy as a social determinant of health, or what I'm, I labeled it a social driver of health. Uh, mm-hmm. As you know, we are talking a lot about these social drivers transportation, mm-hmm. food, housing, employment mm-hmm. what What are your thoughts about how we're doing addressing these social determinants or e- if we're even on the right track with social determinants i th-
0: well i there's so much more that needs to be done. I mean, I haven't seen anything so far that's really been impressive in a way that I think it's going to make a big impact. And again, it's COVID. So maybe, you know, I guess it's been COVID season. Yeah,
1: we've been at this social determinants uh, effort for long before COVID came along, right? So um, what do you think we should be doing that we aren't doing? Or how can we do a better job at the things we are doing?
0: Part of it is just that, you know, healthcare is so siloed. I mean, healthcare is just sort of trying to operate in this old model of providing care that's addressing medical needs and often it's reactionary to problems instead of being more proactive and looking at health more holistically. Um, I also think it's about creating intersectoral like collaborations, like, like what kind of what we're doing with housing. It's like, let's partner and kind of work together to look at some of these these issues. You know, as they say, health, health and everything, right? So how do you work across sectors to look at these problems and problem solve together in a more, you know, system level way versus just trying to, you know, create a kind of an old model clinic that then tries to throw in wraparound services or things like that that don't really solve the problem. Um, especially because we know, you know, the 20% of, of your health is just from your healthcare, your, your clinical services and hospitalization, right? 80% is, is out in your life, what you're doing every day, you know, where you're living and, and all those things. So I think it's going to take a big step back to look at the system and look at how other types of partnerships can be formed to solve issues and not just try and work off the old model and kind of throw, you know, piecemeal things in to sort of help. Okay. Well, your transportation's issue. Okay. We'll try to, you know, do some vouchers or, you know, some Medicaid, you yeah, know, I don't know the programs like that, that are just kind of throwing pieces in that come and go that don't really aren't sustainable and don't sort of look at the system. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, kind of getting back to like what we're doing with the housing, I think that is a good start. You know, I think that that looking at it that way, like going to people exactly where they live. And so when we're in the clinic and we're hearing about, you know, some of these deplorable conditions and patients that have asthma, you know, just because of where they live and the conditions of their apartments and these types of things, it's like, if you're actually there and you're on site and you can, you know, do some home visits, or you could, you know, interact with the patient that way, that's, I think to me, moving in the right direction and kind of trying to look at things differently instead of just, just adding more layers to an old
1: model. Yeah, you know, your your comment about um, healthcare contributing only twenty percent to your overall health uh, strikes a chord. And here in D.C., and I think in a lot of cities, there's a lot of emphasis on ensuring there's access to a hospital. I know that is the conversation that's really taken up most of the bandwidth in the healthcare conversation here, and. I I think it it doesn't go far enough because by the time someone needs a hospital, we've Mm -hmm. failed in so many different areas. I mean, all the areas you're talking about. So I think it's important, you know, not just for DC, but I think health systems across the country and um, Mm -hmm. healthcare policymakers and advocates need to be thinking about how do we move these services and supports upstream? Because Mm -hmm. it's not just about making sure Ah, uh, people who are deathly ill have a place to go, but how do we prevent them from becoming deathly ill in the first place?
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. And how do we sort of normalize
1: it so that it doesn't
0: become a stressful thing? So I think that's the other part. You know, with with patients, with people that are, especially in the DC community, which is you know where I've been the last fifteen years, is you know it's not you know health doesn't have to be this scary thing. There doesn't have to be something wrong with you. And I think that's the other thing that we can, if we can start to embed services out there that just make it more normal, right? I mean, just part of your everyday. then, you know, we can do some of these preventative services that hopefully help people upstream, as you're saying. And it doesn't, you know, it's not the old model of, you know, coming in for this appointment and, you know, everyone's blood pressure goes up because there must be something wrong because I'm going to this hospital or this clinic or something. Um, so I think if we make it lower hanging fruit, make it easier, right. To just access things like that and not make it so traditionally medical, then I think that would be a big help for people and help them to understand how, you know, health is wellness, health, you know, it's, it's about staying healthy. And even if you have a, a chronic disease or some condition, you can still live a healthy life and it, it's, it doesn't have to be the scary thing. So,
1: so the, the last question I I want to ask you is really about um, health equity and how providers can be more engaged to help uh, in this area. I, mm-hmm. I, first of all, I don't think we necessarily agree on what health equity means across the mm-hmm. health system, but we can, you know, we can say that for another episode, but I think healthcare mm-hmm. providers need to be involved in these conversations. And I think for some people, it's a little bit intimidating um, because there are some challenges connecting uh, with patients and understanding where they're coming from. So, given all of your experiences uh, working with underserved populations, what advice do you have for providers who want to better connect with their patients, uh, but who aren't quite sure what to do or how to how to better interact? Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, I think I think the best advice I have is just to listen, you know, to listen a lot more than, than talk. And I, I think my experience, obviously, you know, I'm a white woman, um, working mostly, you know, in an African-American population in DC. And, you know, that's been my career for, you know, the last 15 years. And so I think, um, I think we have to kind of get over the fear of, of doing things wrong. Um, and, and, you know, really just, Think of you know patients' care as is, is just you know taking care of someone in your family and how would you treat them, and then I think you know listening and learning. Um, I mean, I think sadly, you know, I think now the medical education and nursing education and healthcare uh, you know education is doing a better job of incorporating this type of training into you know into the studies into the programs. But I certainly didn't get any of that you know when I was training as a nurse and a nurse practitioner and you know, in any of my three nursing degrees, I didn't get that. So, um, so I think now they're doing a better job. But I think for for active clinicians now, um, you know, not making assumptions, you know, and checking your biases, we all have biases, of course, we come into situations and we make, you know, decisions about people in the first couple seconds. um, And that's just a natural, you know, human
1: thing that happens, but just stepping back, Do you have an example of of a bias or a time you were biased? Because I think the knee-jerk response is for us to say we don't, and it doesn't affect our care. But I know I'm putting you on the spot, but I thought you might have something that came to mind. Hmm.
0: I think that, you know, I don't know. I think sometimes, well, and it depends, and I think it depends on the setting that you're working in. So, you know, because I've mostly, as you said, worked in under, you know, under-resourced communities in, in D.C., I think I make assumptions sometimes about people's ability to, you know, access certain things or get their medications or... Or what their life is like, you know, and and I think, I think again that that speaks to just getting to know patients and letting them speak and tell you sort of who they are and what their situation is, Um, you know. I can't think of a, you know. Well, I'll tell you. I think what one of the best examples is um, making maybe assumptions about initially a, you know, probably as I was trained to kind of check the boxes of okay, you need to do this. You need to do this. You need to exercise. You need to, you know, do all these sort of healthy lifestyle things. And then, um, this was actually a patient that was at the clinic that you and I worked at together, um, going to visit, do a home visit and then realizing, oh my gosh, you know, this person, you know, is living in this apartment and has so many challenges and, um, really can't, you know, she was, she was having issues taking medication. And when I stepped into her, literally stepped into her apartment, stepped into her shoes and saw, you know, what her, her living situation was and the fear and all of the issues that she was facing. I thought, wow, you know, I, I never would have known this had I just, we just had this encounter in the clinic. Um, and it was just this kind of window into her life. And I was like, wow, I'll I'll learn from this experience because I don't think, you know, I was, I was fully appreciating her situation and, and how many barriers and how many struggles she was, she was dealing with. Um. But then getting back to the question that you had asked about advice, I think the other piece is just sustaining relationships. You know, I mean, trust, trust in relationships is huge, right? So if you're a clinician and you're taking care of patients and you, you know, show up every day or every week or, you know, whatever, and you're there and you're just constant um, I think that makes a big difference. Um, You know, sadly the clinic I was working in had closed and then, I was able to come back on a part-time basis and some of the patients said oh you know we heard you were coming back we were looking forward to seeing you and it's because we've they had- heard
1: it through the, they heard it through the grapevine <laughs> they
0: heard it through the grapevine and <laughs> it was like we knew it was like an old friend right like you're coming back we know you're going to be there and and you know that just made me feel great because it's like they you know they're counting on me and they knew that i was going to be there in a constant presence um, so I think that's, that's the other piece. It's really um, just trying to keep things sustainable and develop relationships over time, because I think that's, that's what it's about. Um, and letting people tell you about their situation instead of, you know, making assumptions. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, now that can be very difficult in a 15 minute clinic appointment, as I'm sure a lot of uh, practitioners would say, clinicians would say, but it's, um, I think it's really important. And I think with communities that already have such distrust in the healthcare system and, you know, and such fear, those are the things that, you know, make them feel better and feel, you know, safer to come in to get care.
1: Wow. Well, thank you so much, Erin, and thank you for all the work you're doing on the ground out in the community. I think it makes such a difference. And I look forward to our continued collaboration. That was Erin Athey, a nurse practitioner, sharing her experiences and observations from working out in the community. She offers advice to healthcare providers who want to better connect with underserved populations. Thanks for listening to the Grapevine Health podcast. Our producer is Nicholas Elias. Please like us on social media. You can find us at Grapevine Health on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram, and on Twitter at Health Grapevine. Until next time, I'm Dr. Lisa, signing off.